in 2 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 5, 16 to 21. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Okay, so, on her adventures through Wonderland, Alice encountered a caterpillar who was smoking a big Turkish pipe called a hookah, and he had, this is their brief exchange. Who are you? said the caterpillar. This was not an encouraging opening for a conversation. Alice replied rather shyly, I, I hardly know, sir, just at present. At least I know who I was when I got up this morning, but I think I must have been changed several times since then. What do you mean by that? said the caterpillar sternly. Explain yourself. I can't explain myself, I'm afraid, sir, said Alice, because I'm not myself, you see. I don't see, said the caterpillar. I'm afraid I can't put it more clearly, Alice replied very politely, for I can't understand it myself to begin with, and being so many different sizes in a day is very confusing. So, Alice. Alice is constantly changing, if you know the story. She's talking physically, which is actually a pretty interesting experiment here, thought experiment. She believes how her body changes dictates who she is. Because she's been big and small and all different sizes, she doesn't know who she is. She's constantly changing. She is in a state of flux. And therefore, how do you nail down something that's constantly moving? How do you do it? That's her take, and Lewis Carroll's, I suppose, partly on identity. And it's a question that is worth asking. How do we answer this question? Who are, who are you? Who am I? And we want to define it in a myriad of ways. So we want to say things like, well, the real me is my career. Or the real me is my role as in my family. The real me is who I am in Christ. The real me is whoever I want it to be. The real me is who the culture says. There's so many options out there. And we're constantly, and listen, it changes. If we were all what we wanted to be when we were five, would there be any practical jobs in the world? Would there be any tradespeople? Anybody at three years old or five years old say, I want to be a plumber? No, we all want to be pirates and policemen. But thank goodness nobody cut off our legs and poked out our eyes because then we'd be a horrible world. So we're always changing, right? So how do we come to this? How do we know who we are? And this is the question all humanity is always asking. doesn't matter if you agree with them or not. The person who is identifying as transgender the Christian, the dictator, and the, po the poverty-stricken person are all trying to determine who am I and how do I fit in this world. And we're always trying to do this, constantly. And so as we grope for identity, as we try to grope our way through this world, first let me say this. It's okay to be, on, if you're a conservative type, it's okay to be completely confused and shocked by the way the world is going. I can get it. It's okay to think, oh my goodness, is there any rules? Could we just be anything? But if you're on the other side, it's okay to also be shocked at how slow half the world is to getting caught up with your speed. So you may think, boy, why does somebody have a problem with what I identify as? 
And I can appreciate both sides. Let's just admit and agree that it's okay to be shocked and confused and try to figure out, we have to catch up with the way the world is going. But what we do need to figure out is this. Is it just the human condition? Is Alice right? Is it such that there is no such thing as who you are? It's just a floating idea that you determine for yourself. And this is a very important question because we've all answered that question to an extent, which is why we're so angry or frustrated when somebody disagrees with us. And it's such a, an impassioned conversation. So what we're going to try to look at today is in this passage, how do we learn how to engage in this topic with the world? I think it's snowing outside. I'm sorry. I just saw that for the first time and I had to stop this sermon in the middle. Sorry. Christmas tree's going up. Okay. <laughs> sorry. So, where was I now? Um, but the question of this is how do we engage? As Christians, how do we engage with this topic that is, seems to be pressing in on us everywhere in the media? But not just with the topic, how do you engage with people who disagree with you? Do you just get angry? Do you just rail and throw your arms up? Um, so how do we do it? And, and really, if you're one of the people on the other side and you're a skeptic who happens to be here or listening, then can the Bible really tell us anything? Does this ancient document have anything to say about such a modern issue? And the answer is yes, it does, I think, and we're going to try to see that. Because the church in Corinth was going through an identity crisis. These were people who were accepted pagans one day, and then because of the gospel and the Christian message, the next day they're hated and they're outcasts. So they're trying to figure out, who am I? How does who I say I am match with how I behave, my ethics? And this is why Paul keeps addressing them. Hey, you can't behave this way, and this is the way you should be behaving. And it's all a question of identity. So we're going to see, hopefully here, that the gospel has much to say about identity. And it says that first, Christianity and the gospel destroys human-made or man-made identities. It recreates, or not recreates, it creates a brand new identity. And then... This passage actually tells us why God's identity is better for us than the one we make for ourselves. Okay? So let's address that. So the first one, gospel destroys man-made identities. Well, before we talk about how it destroys it, we need to know a very practical thing. How do we even decide who we are? How do you come to say, I am Carl, pastor, father, Christian, whatever? When somebody asks you, who are you, how do you answer that question? And we're going to try to see how do people answer that question in Canada. We're not yet going to criticize anything. We're not going to call judgment. We're simply going to say, how do we decide that? And the first thing we need to know is culture always either gives you your identity or shapes it. You're not as free as you think to create your own identity. Let me explain. Generally, there's two ways history has always approached deciding how do, we know who I, how do I know who I am. And there was a traditional way and it's given way more recently to a modern way. So the traditional way, let's look at this one first. Easy way of looking at it is it comes outside in. Meaning, I know who I am because somebody outside of me tells me who I am. And then once they tell me, I th and I'll explain this with a practical example. Once they tell me this, I then take that information and say, okay, this is who I am. Then how do I conform how I feel and my behavior and my life direction to match that who I am. So this is a common way of still seeing the world and being raised and thinking of yourself in Asia, Africa, South America. And here's a practical example. Imagine you're born in the Middle Ages to, uh, and you're a boy and you're born to a family of blacksmiths. Your family has been blacksmiths forever. How does that little boy decide who he is? Well, it's very simple. The dad says, 
your grandfather, your father. We've all been blacksmiths, and we have served this community, and we've served in the church as deacons, and we've loved this community. We've given our lives for it. It's needed in war. And so that's who you are. And so the boy grows up thinking, okay, I'm a blacksmith. How do I then become the best blacksmith I can? How do I take these feelings that maybe, I don't want to be a blacksmith, maybe, but how do I conform my inner feelings to align with who the culture says I am? And so long as you conformed to that culture and became a blacksmith, you received honor and praise from your family. Well done, you didn't dishonor us. But if you ran amok and you ran afoul of it and, and said, I'd, I'd rather not be a blacksmith, then maybe you get ostracized and you're kicked out of the family or marginalized or something. And this is the way many people still look at things. You look at your culture, you look at God, you look at something outside of you to say, this is who I am, okay? So that's the traditional view. Now, what we're seeing today is this modern view, which goes the other way. It says, my identity is, is found inside out. Meaning, when I want to know who I am, and I'm not, I'm not criticizing it yet, okay? I'm just, this is just facts, and I'll show you how we know it's fact. When I want to know who I am, and you see this all through TV, media, I heard it at seminary, they're, they're saying, what you should do is you look deep within yourself. You look inside, and you say, who do I feel I am? What do I like? What am I good at? What are your desires, your skills? I look at me, I take inventory first, and then I come out to the world and say, here's who I am. How will, how will you accept me? How do I fit into this world? And it's not a question of me conforming to what the world says, it's the world conforming to who I say I am. You have to make a place for me. And this view, I mean, if you go back to the blacksmith example, it might be the blacksmith, and just for the record, this, never, this rarely ever happened. Because you see, culture never tells you there's another option. In the ancient world, the culture didn't say, hey, you're a blacksmith, but if you want to be an artist, you can be. No, no, there was none of that. There was no Oprah telling them that. And today, for the record, there's nobody in our modern culture saying, no, no, you should be honoring your family. This is assumed that to determine who you are, you have to look within yourself. Culture never apologizes, never makes it look like there's two options. There's one, and if you run afoul of it, you're canceled. Traditional culture did it. They still may do it, right? If you don't honor the family, you're kicked out. You don't marry the right person in some cultures. And in this modern culture, it's the same thing. If you dare tow the, not tow the company line, you could be canceled. And it's such an all-consuming way of now understanding who we are. And again, I'm not yet criticizing it, right? They're both wrong. None of them are gospel. And it's, so, uh, it's everywhere. In everything you watch, in everything you read, I talked about it at the Bible study. We went through a lot of examples of, in, in movies. I'll use just one example that I, most of us have heard, especially if you've got children. It's called Frozen, the movie Frozen. So I'm not going to... Listen, fun movie. Here, but, but it clearly says this is how you know who you are. In it, there's this woman named Elsa, and she is born with these powers to manipulate the weather and make ice and make things frozen, I guess. And they, the culture can't accept her. They don't know what to do with her, right? Because she's causing a mess. She can, she, she can, she can wreak havoc. She's dangerous because they don't understand her. So they lock her away. I'm not in any way promoting either for you here. This is what the, the, the movie is. She then gets fed up with it. And the title song, right? Let it go, let it go, right? I won't sing anymore. <laughs> in that title song, you get an exact... It tells you that what I've just said, from the move from traditional to modern, you see it exactly happening. And again, I'm not critiquing, it's just, it's just there. And it's assumed this is the way you behave. 
So it starts out with her saying, the wind is howling like this swirling storm inside. Couldn't keep it in, heaven knows I tried. Don't let them in, don't let them see. Be the good girl you always have to be. Conceal, don't feel, don't let them know. So she's feeling trapped in this traditional view, right? I am somebody, I'm a peacock, I need to fly, as Mark Wahlberg would say. Terrible, peacocks don't fly. Um, but there's this idea, right? This idea that I am trapped, and we've all felt it. There's a suffocation. And she feels I'm suffocated, I have to be this person I don't want to be. So then comes the, the chorus. Let it go, let it go, I can't hold it back anymore. Let it go, let it go, turn away and slam the door. I don't care what they're going to say. Let the storm rage on, the cold never bothered me anyway. And then just to make sure you know that there's a change from modern or from traditional to modern, there's now a costume change. She pulls off her clothes, a different, a different outfit, which is a typical move in, in fairy tales. And the change means a transformation. And, the, and she closes up with these words. The fears that once controlled me can't get to me at all. It's time to see what I can do to test the limits and break through. No right, no wrong, no rules for me. I'm free. See? Now, all of our movies are doing it. The remake of Mary Poppins does the same thing. Pick, I mean, there's so many. So many movies are all saying this. In fact, if anybody who's a Harry Potter fan? Okay, there's a movie called uh, Fantastic Beasts. And in it, it's so, it's so blatantly obvious. There's a group of, of magicians who aren't allowed to practice their magic. They have to repress their magician, their magical powers. And as a result, because they can't express who they are, all they can produce are these things called obscurus that go out and suck and destroy and, and they're parasites. The idea that J.K. Rowling is clearly saying is, if I can't express who I am, you're hurting me, you're harming me. I can only be negative, a negative impact on the world if I can't be me. This is everywhere. And I'm not yet even criticizing. I'm saying, it's there. So when, you're, when we grow up thinking that this is who I am, understand that it's not you being free. You're being told this by the culture, just as much as the ancients were. And that's an important place to be. Because we have to understand this, because the modern world doesn't just, this modern approach doesn't just say, I'm at odds with tradition, religion, don't tell me, family, don't tell me who I am. It's gone so far now that it's actually putting you at odds with yourself. And here's the big problem. Because some people are looking in the mirror and saying, I am not who that is. I feel differently. So what they're doing is psychology is now pitted against biology. I don't feel like a man. I feel like a woman. Now listen, these are real feelings, real things people have. And like I said, we're all groping for meaning. So I'm not condemning anyone who is struggling with confusion. Not at all. But this is the problem. We are so fragmented in ourselves that we cannot find wholeness and peace and reconciliation. We can't. And now it's not just the world is against me, but my own body's against me. See? And this sort of fragmentation, people then say to me, well, Carl, this is, me, this, is me, this is the way it has to be because I'm not free unless I can be whoever I want. Even if I tell my body, you're wrong. I am Pinocchio. There are no strings on me. I will tell you who I am. I understand. I do. But there's two challenges I have with that. You're not free. None of us are free. Let me explain this very, uh, in his practical life. I heard this, this before. Imagine you're a man walking through Middle Ages London. And as you're walking through London, you feel two feelings in you. Probably more, but let's just say two. The first impulse you feel is honor. When this person comes and bumps me on the shoulder, I want to smack them and have a duel with them. Because this is the honor and shame culture, right? That's what men do. 
The second feeling I have is a same-sex attraction to another man. Now, in the ancient world, in, in, in the medieval times, that man then goes and thinks, okay, what am I going to do with these feelings? Which one does he suppress and which one does he encourage? Well, in that culture, he encourages the honor one, the aggression, because that's what they valued in that culture. But he says, you know, with these other ones, I have to suppress because that's just what we do. I just, that's, that's what we do. And he thinks he's being free. Now imagine that same man is a 21st century man walking through London, and he feels the same two impulses. Which one does he suppress and which one does he encourage? He suppresses the desire to smack this, the guy because that's not what good people do today. But he encourages the sexual one. Why? Is he free? No. He's a product of his culture. And this, the impact of culture on us cannot be mistaken, cannot be forgotten. You and I are not free. Stop thinking you're free. Every time we see young people thinking they're free, old people, anybody thinking they're free, I, as a guy who has spent too much time reading books and studying history, say, boy, none of us are free. None of us. We're all products of our culture to an extent. And if that's the case, then where does this leave us? And here's another problem. Let me say this one too, just for practicality. I cannot always affirm how somebody feels and say it's good that you feel that way and it's okay, because sometimes it's not good for me to do that. If I have a friend who has an eating disorder, like bulimia or anorexia, and they look in the mirror and say, look at me, I'm overweight and I'm valueless and I'm ugly, I have to tell them, it's not true. What you're, seeing, what you're feeling is not true. You're not any of those things. You're infinitely valuable and you're certainly not overweight. I cannot, I'd be cruel if I said, what you're feeling is good, feel it, it's okay. I wouldn't. And so we can't always say, just because someone feels something, it's right. It's just, not, it's just not a valid argument. So now, we've done the philosophical part. Now let's get to Scripture. So how does Scripture address this? Well, here's the problem. We're kind of like people on an ice flow. You know an ice flow is? It's this thing. It's like the, the, the bit of ice that kind of floats, breaks off from something. And you're standing on it. And the whole time you're on it, every, move, every minute you're there, it's melting and getting smaller and smaller and smaller. And your identity, if it's, you're trying to figure out who am I, and your options are getting smaller because you don't trust your government, your, your tradition, your family history. You don't trust your, trust your country, your parents. You don't trust religion. You don't trust churches. You don't even trust yourself because like Alice says, you're a jumble. You're always confused. And now, if you can't even trust yourself, who is left for you? Where do you anchor your identity on? Who are you in this world? And it's getting smaller. And the Bible predicts this quite well. And Paul understood it. He says, you know... The only hope for you is a new creation. Because all the identities you're making for yourself, it doesn't matter if it's your sexuality, your job, your success, your being nice, your ability to produce children, whatever it is, all of it is a false identity that's bound to just disappear and leave you drowning. So Paul comes and says, you must be a new creature. That when you become a Christian, what happens is all of your identities are crashed to pieces. You're completely torn down. Remember Isaiah? Woe to me, I am undone when he comes before God. But then a second later, he says, send me. Why? Because in that instance of meeting God, he sees his identity is crushed. He's broken completely. I am nothing. But then at the same time, he's rebuilt into someone now who is a child and has a different calling and mandate in life. And so Paul seems to get this quite well. He says that the only hope for you is the death of who you think you are 
and God to tell you who you actually are. And so, this idea is really well caught by this, this well, lots of profs and, and scholars, but one of them is a guy named Mark Seifried, and he teaches at Concordia Seminary. Here's what he says about this very passage. By the power of his saving work, we no longer know Christ as a mere teacher or miracle worker, nor as a mere, a mere moral ideal and example. We know him as the one who died excuse me, for us, that we might live for him. For Paul, true knowledge of Christ consists in the knowledge of Christ's saving benefits. Here's the key. These saving benefits include the overturning of our understanding of the world. We are, no, we are not those who may see and judge, but the blind who have been judged and yet have been granted sight. He noticed something, that in this passage, Paul is saying, you're a new creature. When Paul says, I no longer see anyone according to the flesh, that word see isn't see. It's the word oida, which means knowledge. I don't know anything like I used to know it. Because Christ, as a Christian, when you become a Christian, everything changes. The way you see the world, the way you think of the world, and the way you see yourself. And all of it is crashed to pieces. And it needs to happen because, once again, the same professor says this, the deadly narcissism of a life turned in on itself has been broken for Paul by the power of Christ. The pro-me of the gospel does not further an autonomous individualism. It brings it to an end. We require a word from without, outside of us, to interpret the world to us. In the rebellion of unbelief, human beings re reject that word and are thrown back upon their own constructions of reality, their own interpretations of the world. These stories that we tell ourselves are conditioned not merely by our time and place, but also and more fundamentally by the self-seeking that is inherent in our rebellion against God. Really, he's spot on. He is saying that you and I, no matter what else we do, we have rejected God. And when we reject God's idea of who we are as humans, we still start looking for who we are. But because we don't know who we are, we're grasping at anything we can find. And as a result, we're a mess. We can't know who we are until God tells us who we are. And the example I often use, I don't want to go too long, but I'm going to use it anyway, is an um, example of like a candle. Let's, use, let's put all the things we just talked about here back into this example of a candle. If I am a candle and I become conscious and I can think, how do I know that I, what I am? Well, I may have my family, the other candles, say, hey, for generations, we have adorned the walls. That little string on our head, people string us up on a nail, and we hang on the walls of the homes of great people. And that's what we are. We're decoration. So that's what you are. But then maybe we have the world, this modern view, telling us, no, no, no. You can be whatever you want. Don't listen to your parents. Do what you want. Look inside and see what you can be for yourself. So the candle may say, well, look at me. I'm slender. Uh, I look a bit like a screwdriver. Maybe I'm a screwdriver. So, and I know it's funny, but so they go and say, I'm going to be a screwdriver. Now, regardless of whether they listen to their parents and they're hanging on a wall, or if they try to be a screwdriver and find they're being continually broken because they're not strong enough to be a screwdriver, they're not made for that. The point is, no matter how happy their life is, they're never living as they ought to be because they don't know who they are. And the only way for that candle to know what it is is for the one who made it to say, you've misunderstood. That thing on top, it's going to sound counterintuitive, candle, but the only way for you to be at peace is to be put to death. If you light yourself on fire and become light and warmth for others, you will die, but you'll be at peace. And the only way for the candle to know that is if it asks the one who made it, not if it looks inside, not if it asks Oprah, or a pastor for that matter. It has to ask God what it is. 
And this is so basic. The Bible says the only hope for your identity is to have it destroyed and rebuilt by Christ. Now, second point then. When God comes in, in this passage, Paul gives us such a great example of what your new identity is when you become a Christian. And, and then later, why it's the best one. This new idea, he says it so clearly, right? He says, when, this, when you become a new creature, when you meet Christ and you become a Christian, here's what happens. First, your relationship is changed. You're no longer a rebel, you're now a child. And I can hear the skeptic in me saying, but aren't all humans children of God? No, let me explain. If you have a family business and you have two sons or two daughters, pick whoever, and one of them is renegade, prodigal son style, renegade. They dishonor you, they're no good, they're drinking the way they're prophets, they're just it's not behaving great. The other one, however, is faithful. Which one gets put into the inheritance? Which one inherits the family business? The one who proves to be a true son, right? And so, even in our world, we say, there is not just biology here. There's something beyond it as well, right? And so, when we become a Christian, you become a son, not a trust fund baby who's going to just wait to inherit the blessing. No, you find that you are saved freely, but now there's implications of being saved. If you are a prince, you must behave prince-like, princess-like. And so Paul comes and says, you're a new creature, and that new creature has a new calling, and that new calling is to be an ambassador. And that way you behave as an ambassador is to reconcile. So your job title is ambassador, the way you go about being an ambassador is in reconciliation. Now let me explain what I mean. The gospel comes and says, here, first you need to know you're a child of God. You're not your sexual identity. That's not what primarily defines you. Your job doesn't. Everything comes from the fact that you're a child of God. If you are a child of God, then how you determine how you are a teacher, how you are a mechanic, how you are a bus driver, whatever it is, that is filtered through the truth of your foundation. I am a child of God. And not just that, I'm an ambassador. So what does it mean to be an ambassador who is a mechanic or whatever? Now, ambassadors, I've said a few things about them in the past. So I'm going to say one thing that's new and everything else you've heard from me, if you've listened. But you probably have forgot. That's okay. So, ambassadors. If I'm an ambassador to China from Canada, my job is to know everything I can about China, to know its language, to know its culture, what it values, what it doesn't, and know everything I can, but I must never forget that I am a Canadian in China functioning to forward the benefits or forward the, 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 um, the policies of Canada. And so I am as Chinese as I can be, but never forgetting I'm actually a citizen of Canada. Right? So I must know the culture and love it. But here's what we forget, and I think we miss it sometimes. This is an ancient book, and when Paul says we are ambassadors, he's not thinking about modern Canadian ambassadors who live in nice houses and go to cocktail parties. That's not what he's thinking. In the ancient world, did you know you never sent an ambassador to a country unless you were the weaker nation? So uh, Augustus, Caesar Augustus, boasts, we have his writings, he boasts about how many ambassadors would come to visit him every week. He thought, what a, look at this, look at all these peons, these nations coming to me, these people. They're coming because they're trying to curry favor with me. And that was a sign of power. You would never, Rome would never send an ambassador to Gaul. They'd send generals to Gaul. Because an ambassador's sole job was to reconcile. How do I make peace? But why does the aggressor, the big power, need to make peace? He doesn't have to. If you've watched the 1960-whatever movie, uh, Spartacus, Michael Douglas, 
when Spartacus has a slave revolt in Rome in the first century BC, um, you know what happens. Uh, Rome doesn't send ambassadors to Spartacus and say, Spartacus, come on, be reasonable. It's not what happens. They send generals and they crush the rebellion. And that is what happens in the ancient world. So when God says to Paul and Paul says to us that God is sending us out as ambassadors into the world, do you know what he's doing? This is an incredible act of condescension by God in, in the positive sense. God's humility here is incredible. He doesn't need to make peace with you, rebels. But he says, I'm going to anyway. I'm going to send you out as ambassadors to reconcile them to me, show them what I've done, and tell them to be reconciled. I'm giving them a chance here. He didn't have to. And so that spirit needs to be in every time we interact with people. First, our own identity. We need to know it's who we are, ambassadors and reconcilers. But when I'm now talking to somebody who is transgender, who disagrees with me on fundamental issues about the way the world is and the way who we are, I need to remember I'm not there to win an argument. I'm not there to make them feel bad. I'm not there to add to their trouble. I am there to see what I can do to love them and reconcile them to God. That's my job. And so, four very quick practicals. First thing I would suggest we try to do is invite. When you meet people who disagree with you of any spot with identity, and I'm just talking this one, but this really works for anything, is this. Don't just invite them to an argument. Say, hey, let's, let's meet regularly. Come into my home. Let's be friends. Let me know who you are. You don't just want to go and proclaim the verbal gospel to them. You want to go and show them what a, an identity in Christ looks like lived out. You want to show them how proper relationships look between husband and wife and friends and singles, whoever it is. And so we invite them into our lives, not just into a debate or into a, a Christianity Explored class, though that's good too. Okay? So we invite them. Second thing we do is we listen. We have to not be listening just to get to catch them in a, in a mistake or to beat them in an argument. That's what the Pharisees did. Right? And we condemn them. Our job is to actually listen, because these are human beings trying to understand who they are in the world, and they, much like us, have been deluded by sin and culture. And so we need to listen to their stories, because that's who they are at the moment. We have to figure that out. We have to know them. So that's one. Next thing we have to do is protect them. Now, this doesn't mean affirming that the way everybody lives is right. So that's not what it is. But it does mean this. Did you know, for instance, that people who identify as LGBTQ, I won't go through all the acronyms, and that's not trying to disparage, there's just, I actually don't, there's so many of them, um, or identify as transgender. They are bullied, hated, beaten, more likely to be raped and have violence committed against them than straight people. Did you know that they are four times more likely than straight people to attempt suicide? And if they identify as transgender, they're six times more likely. Every 45 seconds, someone who identifies as transgender or LGBT and so on attempts suicide in North America. 50% of these kids who are 13 to 17 years old have attempted suicide or thought about it. 50%. Um, 61% experience symptoms of depression. 75% experience severe anxiety. 82% have said that they would like health, mental health care over the last 12 months. They're far more likely to be engaged in, in drug abuse and to die from drug abuse. Now, regardless of what you think. These are people who are made in the image of God, who are stuffed full of the dignity of God because they are image bearers. We must honor them as, as image bearers. Not affirm everything they do, but we must love them. We must care for them. 
So we need to protect them. When we speak with them, we don't use insensitive remarks, not because we're affirming what they say, but because we affirm that they're God's creatures. We affirm them by not mocking them, not making silly jokes. You may even choose to use their pronouns. That's up to you. I'm not going to tell you what to do there. But you want to honor them because they're honorable things because they're made by God. Okay? God sent ambassadors into the world, not soldiers. When God wants to send generals, he will do it. We read Revelation. He'll take care of that. He has made you and I ambassadors to protect the faith as best we can, surely, and to declare the truth. But you and I are reconcilers, first and foremost. We go and we say, and this brings us to the last part, we invest in them. We say, hey, let's meet, let's keep meeting, but I want you to come, come to church with me. Come to the Bible study. Let's talk about this because I want you to be at peace. I want you to have freedom. I want you to use all those great gifts to serve God, not to serve anything else. And so we invest in them. We're not, it's not a drive-by situation. Right? Hard. These are hard things to talk about for some. Not, not so much for me. But above all, we must be led by Scripture, by prayer and discernment. Let's not be guided by feelings. Remember, we're telling them not to be guided by your feelings. So when you hear something and you want to get angry because this is a matter of truth, what is true, what isn't, I understand that feeling. Our job is not to get angry but to remember, we are reconcilers. How do we love them? How do we have meaningful discussion and relationships? Now, why is this better? Last point. So, this is a better. God's plan for us is far better than any one we could ever come up with. And the reason is very simple. Everything we're trying to do by creating our own identities, we can't do, but he succeeds in doing. So what we're trying to do, if you want to get big words, we're trying to marry the objective and the subjective. We're trying to get peace within ourselves about who we think we are, and who the world tells us we are, and how to live in it. That's what we're trying to do, all of us. God says, yes, it's exactly it, but you can't do it, but I can do it. And so he comes, and he comes and he says, first I'm going to deal with who you are at your root, who you are as a child. And this means you're no longer a rebel. And so you're a brand new creature, so you actually can, you have a real meaning, a real purpose. And because that root identity has changed, then your feelings change, or are free to change anyway. And so... Because you know who you are, there's no more confusion, right? But am I this gender? Am I not this gender? Am I this? Is my, am I my job? Am I my career? Whatever it is, that is gone. The confusion is gone because you know who you are. You're a child of God. The worthlessness that comes with us when you feel like you're not worthy because, listen, LGBT folks, they feel useless, some of them, because that's the culture they're brought into, a culture that doesn't understand them. And we are to say, hey, one thing's for certain, regardless of what you do with your life, you're not worthless. And we know that with the gospel, because if your worth is determined by how much someone will pay for you, what is your worth if the king of everything gave up his life for you? Infinite worth. And so it's a better identity than one you could create for yourself. The meaninglessness is gone of not knowing what do I do with my life, because as we've just seen, you have a meaning. You're a child, an ambassador, and a reconciler. You've got meaning. And then the hopelessness is gone, because you know where you're going. You know that no matter how this world receives you, you know where you're going. But you don't know in any other identity. Now, two things I'll say to close. One, this is a hard thing to do. To become a Christian is always difficult because it means throwing away an old life and becoming a new one. And there's this example I heard, oh, I don't even know who said it. I think it was actually Nietzsche. I think it was an atheist. I don't remember. It doesn't matter. Imagine this. Imagine a man is a slave and he is freed all of a sudden. The very next day after he's been freed is the hardest day for that man because he has to now go into the market 
and behave like a free man, knowing he's never done this before, and everybody who's there knows he was a slave. And so the hardest thing for that person to do is to live in the freedom they actually have because they've been a slave so long. And the hardest thing for the world to do is to accept them as free because we've only known him as a slave for so long. And so it is incredibly difficult for people to become a Christian first because it means giving up everything. If you've told them the gospel properly, that's, they know that's giving up everything. And yet, this is the only hope for them. And when you make that change, things become topsy-turvy. You go from a person who once would agree with someone like Madonna. Everybody knows Madonna. She's still around. She says this, I am my own experiment. I am my own work of art. She's a product of the modern age, right? This is what she thinks. And that, that makes a lot of sense for a lot of us. Until you become a Christian, and then you agree with George MacDonald, this Scottish author, who says, I would rather be what God chose to make me than the most glorious creature that I could think of. For to have been thought about, born in God's thought, and then made by God, is the dearest, grandest, and most precious thing in all of thinking. And how do you grow then? The only way... God has a bigger plan. We think we can be at peace because of where we sleep at night, because of who we are attracted to, because of how much money we've made. You're on the ice flow. The only hope for you is in Christ. But to do that, then you, then you become a Christian. The only hope then is God says, get into a community that helps you understand what it means to be free. Get into that and start reading the scripture that tells you what it means to be free. Start praying because it's going to be hard for you to remain free. And then start serving so then you can live out that freedom. It's the gospel. Let's pray.